The young man that is coming to present is a personification of a man who was blessed by being placed in an advantageous home. He probably has as good or the best mom and dad anyone could ever hope to have. He was blessed with an incredible start in life. And then, in addition to that, he married into a family that is absolutely unbelievable. Dr. Wilson, that presented earlier today, is his father-in-law. And Brother Miles Young is one of the finest people you will ever, ever meet. He is the pastor of the Rock Church in Elk Grove, California. Has been for roughly 20 years. He serves on global missions boards. He is a member of the Worldwide Pentecostal Fellowship. He's currently the vice president of Alliance Mundial SA in Honduras. It's a religious humanitarian organization. He has planted two churches, one in Santee, one in Oakland, California. He is living embodiment that Thomas Jefferson didn't have the foggiest idea what he was talking about. Thomas Jefferson said, all men are created equal. That is not true. He is living proof of that. He can do so many things, and he does them so well. An absolutely talented gospel musician. He's recorded nine gospel projects. He is musically talented. He can preach. He can pastor. He can travel the world and create all kinds of wonderful opportunities. He has his master's. He submitted his doctorate last night. And I am so proud today to get to have the opportunity to introduce him to you. We love you very much, Brother Miles Young. Dr. Young, by faith, take your liberty. Thank you. Thank you, Brother Bo. And I want to say um, thank you to Brother and Sister Mayo. Uh, let's, let's give them a big hand. What a tremendous couple they are. And um, I want to give a shout out to Cornerstone, doing a great job of hosting this. And uh, as, a, as a guest presenter, um, I was not sure of what the process was for registering. I, I assumed there was a cost, and uh, in finding out a little while ago, there is not. And uh, so, Brother Mayo, I want, I want to publicly go on record and say we want to support uh, this work with you, and uh, whatever remuneration you had planned for me, uh, I request that you not give that, because I have been blessed by being here personally, and I want to encourage any of you that are here with no registration cost, I know there was cost, I don't mean this to be a load or a sacrifice, but if you could in any way contribute, I'm sure it would be a blessing, and uh, we're going to contribute. I think we ought to give Cornerstone and Brother and Sister Mayo and this team a big hand.
You may be seated in the words of Rick Mayo. He's an end time cat. <laughs> My subject is a theology of mission, and I have been blessed and enriched by all the presentations thus far, and uh, as well as the fellowship outside of these sessions. I think one of the biggest benefits of these types of environments is that the conversations that unfold as a result of this room uh, lead to conversation in the foyer at the table. So I've enjoyed those as well. We're going to pick up kind of where uh, Brother Wilmoth left off with his closing remarks of Scripture in his presentation uh, from the book of Acts that we would receive power after that the Holy Ghost has come upon us to be witnesses. And so here I have been asked to discuss a theology of mission or the Missio Dei. And uh, so let's begin. What is a theology of mission? At first glance, our traditional ministry mindsets may view the term as disconnected or even contrary from our normal thought patterns. We are confident in our understanding of theology, for it can be identified by its creeds, dogmas, teachings, sermons, and statements of faith. Mission, however, is something different and can, can be summed up in doing. We seldom think of mission and theology as having much in common. Oftentimes, our first inclination is that people who are interested in one are probably not that concerned with the other. Repeatedly, the view of theologians seems to be one of the pointy-headed religious intellectuals concerned only with gaining knowledge from the biblical library. Opposed to this, we tend to see mission as living and doing in a more practical sense. Thus, the doers are placed in a category known as missionaries. As Christopher Wright stated, I love this quote, In mutual suspicion, theologians may not relish their theories being muddied by the facts on the ground, and the challenging questions thrown up by the messiness of practical mission. Practitioners of mission in quick repose may not wish to see their urgent commitment to getting on with the job Christ entrusted to us delayed by indulgent navel-gazing about obscure long words ending in ology. I like that. Which leads me to what I believe is a key question for where we are today. Is there a place for mission and theology to come together in agreement? This essay proposes that mission and theology are not mutually exclusive. There should be no theology that is removed from mission, and there should be no mission that does not spring from the well of biblical theology. I propose that mission is, in fact, the core of theology. Let's start with a brief examination of theology. Through the centuries, there has often been debate, discussion, and development of the definition of theology. For some, theology is faith seeking understanding through rational thought. Therefore, theology becomes a discipline of the trained mind that justifies its judgments of faith. In the 18th century, during the Enlightenment period, challenged Christianity to defend its views. Consequently, attempts were made to provide a scientific foundation for theology. A variety of ideas that developed over time have shaped our definitions. The general view of theology is that it is about fundamental concerns that affect life at all levels concerning God and man. Theology is not something distant and set apart 
from daily life. I like to say it this way. Theology is not made for the library, but it's made for the sidewalk. Karl Barth's oft-quoted statement that theology was done should be done with the Bible in one hand and with a newspaper in the other rings true for the missiologist. Theology is determined to be the study of God and his relation to humanity. It is a study that listens to both the voice of God and the cry of man. This description of God's concern with humanity provides the foundation upon which a theology of mission is established. So what do we mean by a theology of mission? The accepted general view of mission in the Western world is described as things that are done in foreign lands that involve the sending and the funding of activities of the church. And uh, you can do your own little personal proof test if your church secretary would call and said, hey, you got two calls while you were out. One was from a theologian and one's from a missionary. What do you think the missions call's about? We have relegated mission to funding and donorship. For many, David Bosch's 1991 statement that missiology is the Theological Institution's Department of Foreign Affairs is an apt description that I find to be humorous but yet incomplete. Missiology is much more than just activity done in some remote location across the seas. I propose that mission is the essential being of the church. In their attempt to define missiology, Jung Ganil and Van England suggest three general ideas that support most missional thinking. Number one, there's the theology of the Missio Dei, which simply means the mission of God, which sees missions as God's initiative. There is number two, a missiology, which focuses on the role and the activity of the church. And number three, there is an emphasis on mission as redemptive history. The premise of this essay is that a theology of mission is the disciplined study that seeks to understand and fulfill God's purpose in the earth. This definition requires that the missiologist first begin with an accurate understanding of God's purpose in the earth. God's purpose is not something that has been hidden from humanity. Therefore, this prerequisite is knowable. We can see the purpose of God revealed in his word and in the face, as has been discussed at length today, in the face of Jesus Christ. Andrew Kirk described Jesus as God's, and I would add personal, but he said it was God's project, Jesus was God's project to establish his governance, justice, reconciliation, peace, and compassion. This is the Missio Dei. Mission begins with God and not with man. For me, this is a fundamental understanding that mission is not the activity that the church initiated, but rather mission was initiated by God. Micah, as has already been quoted, revealed that his goings forth have been from of old, from everlasting. This going out from himself culminates ultimately in the incarnation in Bethlehem stable, which is the ultimate narrative of the Missio Dei. It is the account of God himself as missionary. He robed himself in flesh and dwelt among us. The incarnation is the act of God moving into the neighborhood. He did not initiate his mission by sending someone else, but rather he made bare 
his own arm, his holy arm, and came himself, thus exposing himself to the full gamut of the human experience, even to the point of death. He became like us so that we could become like him. The incarnation was the self-proclamation of his mission as the word became flesh. God's mission has not changed. And in like manner, the active declaration of the word continues through believers. For instance, Michael Gorman described the Missio Dei as the benevolent intervention of God into the history of Israel, human history, and the entire cosmos to set right a world gone away. The Missio Dei is God at work liberating all of the creation from the power and curse of sin, hence bringing salvation to lost humanity. The church serves the mission by incarnating and proclaiming the good news from God's word and making disciples, thereby fulfilling what is known as the Great Commission. Now, uh, we're going to go into this next uh, section of this presentation. And as apostolics, we are big on what I would call salvific efforts. And so, if that is indeed the case, uh, we need to know what it means, salvation, in the, from the idea or the viewpoint or lens of a theology of mission. What does it mean to be saved? Do we understand the full meaning of our conversion? I firmly believe that our salvation is more than just deliverance from the bondage of sin and an escape from eternal damnation. The Apostle Paul in his letter to the Romans provides a concise view of the Missio Dei and the role of the church. He reveals the journey from servanthood to apostleship for which he was called and separated unto the gospel. Paul viewed his salvation experience as more than a conversion but rather as a calling. He viewed the grace that he had received and his calling in light of mission. Quote, by whom we have received grace and apostleship for obedience to the faith among all nations for his name. Romans 1 and 5. Paul recognized that his calling as an apostle required obedience to the mission of delivering the gospel to the nations. To fail in sharing the gospel with the Gentiles would have brought shame to his calling for which he had been set apart. This is the reason that he declared, For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God unto salvation to everyone that believeth, to the Jew first, and also to the Greek. For the apostle Paul it would have been shameful to fail to preach the gospel of Christ to the nations. Notice that the good news of salvation was for everyone. It was given to the Jew first. But it was also to be preached to the Greeks or Gentiles as well. The good news was that through the death, burial, resurrection of Jesus Christ, this made salvation available to both the Jew and the Gentile. Looking at these verses through the missiological lens reveals that we may have overlooked a significant scriptural key. In Romans 1.16, Paul concludes with the statement <clears throat> that the gospel is to the Jew first, and also to the Greek. But then he follows up by stating, for therein is the righteousness of God revealed. Paul plainly states, or states plainly, that the way God's righteousness is revealed in the earth is through the apostolic calling 
that carries the good news from the recipient culture, the Jews, to another culture, or cultures, I should say, of the Gentiles. Paul recognized that if he did not obey his assignment as one sent to the Gentiles, he would bring shame upon himself. Paul's theology was obviously a theology of mission and that he was to be an active participant in the Missio Dei. What we have just gone through in this preceding paragraph is an example of viewing Scripture through the lens of mission. There is a tweaking or a twisting of the kaleidoscope to see another dimension. Oftentimes we quote, I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. Don't be afraid to carry your family Bible into the Starbucks. And that's what we have limited that text to. But looking through the lens of missiology, suddenly the scriptures take on another tint or tone. And uh, thus I gave that example. A theology of mission essentially concerns the participative action of God and his people. The understanding of the Missio Dei pulls one into the depths of cooperation with the divine. It begs one to recognize that Jesus did not say, come sit with me, but rather he said, come follow me. The Missio Dei is interpreted both from above and from below. The view from above springs from the Holy Scriptures as textbook, while the view from below is witnessed by God's involvement in our earthly context. One approaches the Scripture from... The ecclesiological view, the church appears to be the goal of mission, which shapes ideas and actions and activities of the church and grease the machine and so on, and important things that have to do with the church being the goal of mission. However, from the missiological view, the church becomes the agent of mission. This understanding moves us to search not only the scriptures, but to also ask ourselves the following questions. What is God doing in the earth and what is God doing within my reach? The theology of mission is the revelation that all believers have been called to be participants in the Missio Dei. It is the call to become fully engaged in God's purpose and the refusal to remain in the shallows while the Spirit calls to the deeper dimensions of walking and working with God. I include this next uh, section of this paragraph uh, for an example. 1981, David Bosch wrote the highly successful missional work, transforming missile, titled Transforming Mission, Paradigm Shifts in the Theology of Mission, which has sold uh, more than 80,000 copies. While his writing generated significant funds and discussion, it did not inspire 80,000 people to become missionaries. One is forced to admit that within Christianity there is an interest in mission. Nevertheless, it evidently does not equate to active participation in missiology. Missiology is not meant to be an ology, but it is to do more than incite or provoke interest. We, I believe, are back to our text. To become participants in the mission of God requires more than some kind of what I call disinterested benevolence. The missionary comes through with his slides or tables or wares, uh, selling to promote, to raise fun. And so we feel like we have accomplished mission by dropping 500, 20, 30, or even $1,000 with some type of disinterested benevolence. But that's 
a very base level of participation. It also demands more than a mission statement. Partnering with God in His mission necessitates action. Mission is a realm of action that requires going, sending, funding, building. Furthermore, mission is never stagnant. The Bible prophetically reveals the active missional movement of God. How beautiful, the Bible says, upon the mountains are the feet of Him that bringeth good tidings, that publisheth peace, that bringeth good tidings of good, that publisheth salvation, that saith unto Zion, thy God reigneth. It's needful to point out that this movement of Him becomes the actions of them that preach the gospel or the good news of peace in Romans chapter 10 and verse 15. The missional activity of proclamation of the good news to the world was first begun by God himself, is now to be continued by the church. Believers are to be participants in the Missio Dei. Notice again the movement and action in the text. The feet that are bringing the gospel of peace is Paul's proof text for his question. How shall they preach except they be sent? Andrew Kirk observed this movement and stated missions, mission is traveling. It is being on a journey. It is a restless moving towards time when God will be all in all in creation and salvation. Christians are in transit. They have never landed at their final destination in this life. Maybe this is why uh, Belagama meant what he meant when he stated missionaries are at home everywhere but not quite at home anywhere. The call of the Missio Dei continues until its goal and purpose are accomplished. I wholeheartedly agree with the following statement by Christopher Wright. God's mission is what spans the gap between the curse of Genesis and the end of the curse and the new creation of Revelation 22. God's mission is what brings humanity from being a cacophony of nations divided and scattered in rebellion against God in Genesis 11 to being a choir of nations united and gathered in the worship of God in Revelation chapter 7. Now, there is a rising movement. It's not new, but it's, it's rising even uh, more. Uh, the growth of businesses' mission and uh, things of this nature have been labeled by many as what is known as uh, the social gospel. And uh, philanthropic efforts are placed under this category. And uh, so where do, where, do, where do we go with that? How do we view that? This is another reason why a theology of mission is important. There are many activities, back to the text, that are placed beneath the banner of mission. However, the church must remember what Andrew Kirk stated there can be no authentic evangelism apart from a living testimony to the transforming power of the gospel in action. Without a message of salvation, we have nothing more than social enterprise, which meets immediate needs but offers nothing eternal. Herein lies the reason for a proper theology of mission. For the church must not fall to the temptation to meet the needs of people while neglecting to provide the entry into the kingdom. I am not interested in producing what missiologists call rice Christians. There was, in the 70s, there was a large push toward providing uh, food, uh, which we do, we've been involved. Uh, but one of the things that coined the phrase rice Christians is to the chagrin of the missionaries that were involved in providing food again and again and again was when the donor base ran out and the rice could no longer be provided 
they found out that what had been built were what is now known in missiology as rice Christians that had come simply for, seems like another crowd of loaves and fishes. Um, there is also the myth in this context that why I believe this is important is there's the idea that is uh, propagated often in, in the halls of missiology is that you've got to meet the need of the people before you can give them the gospel. Uh, Brother Wilmoth could tell you uh, a moving story about the revival in Liberia uh, that continued in the face of a devastating and long-enduring decades civil war. And uh, the story that I was told, Brother Stewart related, had been unable to get back into the part of the country where the war was going on and uh, closed for many weeks and unable to get food to them. And finally, an opening arrived, and he was able to get to that part of Liberia in the uh, bush. And he got to the little church, and when he got there, outside the church, from the way I remember the story, there were graves that had been dug, shallow graves. Uh, many of the members of the congregation that had starved to death, and uh, they were buried there on the church grounds. And moving into the sanctuary, he looked no one was sitting on the pews. They were laying on the floor too weak to even sit up. And the pastor was laying down with a microphone too weak to stand, but preaching the gospel even though they had not eaten. So the apostolic church in Liberia undoes the myth that you do not have to meet a social need or even a physical need. There is a hunger that is far deeper than rice and sustenance. There is a soul that longs for the true power of the living Christ. Now, that is not to say that we do not involve ourselves because we could immediately rush and show that while he was teaching, he stopped to feed thousands of people. Our example, Jesus Christ. But, Again, it must be connected to the ultimate entry into the kingdom. So even if there are philanthropic or medical or educational, uh, as many of you are involved in, uh, it's important that those things arrive out of a theology of mission related to the kingdom. A true biblical understanding of mission should remind us that the gospel calls for distinctive living. Therefore, if the church blends with the world, it will soon become a non-entity. For example, consider the job of a postman, which is to deliver mail. We give no thought to his character or his ethics. We simply desire for the postman to do his job. Just getting the job is contrasted with those that are called to deliver the gospel to the world. God is concerned with the manner of people that serve his mission. Christopher Wright addressed this concept stating there is a danger that the expression, the whole church, taking the whole gospel to the whole world, turns the church into nothing more than a delivery mechanism for the message. The church is not just following some historical tradition, but moreover, we are a part of God's activity in the earth. Therefore, we should be active and performing, in performing and declaring the gospel in the midst of our changing culture. I want to segue in this presentation now from a more of a missiological approach. Uh, missiology being a study of how mission, one dimension is that it studies how mission has been done since Acts chapter 2. And it's a broad category of mission in, in all uh, Christendom. Uh, and even 
in the apostolic faith, but uh, that's kind of where this next sex, uh, section comes from. Uh, we just assume things, for instance, like the term the Great Commission as if it's been around since the days of the apostles when actuality, uh, the very term the Great Commission did not even come about until Justinian, or Justinian Van Wells uh, phrased it in a speech and then following that Hudson Taylor picked it up and popularized it. So, so the idea of mission as we know it, this Great Commission idea, uh, was, is more of a late-breaking event. And uh, at the time, this is something to note, that at the time of William Carey, who is known as the father of modern mission, William Carey University, so on and so forth, uh, at the time William Carey was a missionary, there were only, history records, there were only a few hundred missionaries in the world, what we would label missionaries. We, we just assume that there's been missions all since Acts chapter 2 as far as, and I understand the gospel has never stopped, so there's never been an age where it hasn't been. But this idea of mission and sending of missionaries, we, we've got the idea that this has always happened when that, in fact, has not been the case. And uh, then, it's interesting, the 1900s, early 1900s, there was an explosion of missions that even denominal Christianity has to admit was propagated this explosion was driven largely in part uh, by what is known as the Azusa Street Revival. So let's go to this part of the presentation. A missiological review of Christian mission history reveals that particular forces and efforts existed during specific time periods. In his work, Changing Frontiers of Mission, William Shank provides a thorough examination of these missional efforts. Shank examines the impact that these changes have had in shaping the mainstream of Christianity's current state of mission. His examination reveals particular strategies and models of missions and how they have functioned and failed. For example, during the 16th and 19th through the 19th centuries, the focus was centered on the replication of churches and establishing schools that provided translations of the Bible. So there's a whole study of what happened then. In 1850, a shift toward indigenization occurred in missional thinking. This shift included a push for missions to become self-supporting, self-propagating, and self-governing. Men like William Carey uh, were what would become Baptist uh, missionaries. He was literally kicked out of the Anglican church because he proposed that uh, there should be a new way that missionaries should actually learn the language of the culture where they were going and he said that within five years, every missionary should be uh, able to produce income of its own. He was a proponent of teaching uh, the people that were indigenous to begin to pay tithe and receive the same blessing. That was not just a Western culture. And uh, that didn't sit well with the missions board, and he was removed. Uh, but this did create a new shift in mission globally in at least what we would call the Christian world. In the 1960s, there was another shift in world mission, a new wave of mission thinking shifted toward contextualization. This is important for where we are, I believe, in the apostolic movement, which attempts to shape mission according to the culture and context, making it more acceptable. This shift toward contextualization, I believe, is contributing to the current decline of mainstream Christianity. This is the reason that, that I included this in this presentation, because if you miss the idea in your theology of mission that it is the mission of God and rather the mission of the church, 
then you are tempted to find acceptable contextual ways to fit in. Instead of changing culture, you attempt to embrace culture. It is imperative that the apostolic church understands that culture is not cultural friendly and is in fact hostile to truth. Acceptance by godless culture requires compromise and adaptation. To bend our apostolic message in such a way as to be accepted by culture reveals a lack of courage as well as a lack of understanding of the Missio Dei. Scott Crawford states, The Bible is a record of theology and mission God in action in behalf of the salvation of mankind, his mission to bring all things into accord with his eternal purpose culminates in the coming kingdom of God. Christopher Wright points out that the church is God's missional people and we have a role to play in the grand narrative of God's love for the world. We are to learn from the scriptural history of the failures and the successes of those that God has used in his mission. To neglect the mission is to miss our purpose. Now, I want us to look, uh, as we go to this last couple of pages, uh, what I would call current trends uh, in mission. While faith seems to be on the decline in the Western world, in Western world Christianity and Pentecostal in particular are experiencing explosive growth on the continent of Africa. I bring this up on purpose. This phenomenon of Pentecostal expansion demands the attention of scholars to examine the reasons why. There can be no real discussion about mission in the 21st century without serious observation of African Christianity. Andrew Wall's statement, we have, reg we have to regard African Christianity as potentially the representative Christianity of the 21st century, bears serious consideration. Maybe this never has entered your mind because we come from our Western North American mindset that we're the center of the earth and its activities. But there's a great, gigantic phenomenon taking place in the earth right now in Christianity and even Pentecostalism and even the apostolic move, movement. Walls went on to say, the Christianity typical of the 21st century will be shaped by the events and processes. By the way, Walls is not Pentecostal. Okay, this is what even evangelicals and the ecumenical movement are having to admit. And he says, the Christianity typical of the 21st century will be shaped by the events and processes that take place in the southern continents and above all by those that take place in Africa. Why do I put this in this discussion? The Pew uh, group, the research group in 2011 did a study and I should have included this in the notes, but I didn't. But I'll give it to you. If you take a note, you can write it down. That 44% of the world's Pentecostals now live in Africa. And 15% of Africa is now Pentecostal. No wonder the denominal world is trying to figure out what does this mean. If this is true then missiologists must pay close attention to how mission is presently being accomplished in Africa. Those who lived in the 19th and 20th centuries would probably have a difficult time believing that Africa would become the leading sender, sending center of global mission. 
The growth of Africa sending missionaries is a radical departure from Christianity at the beginning of the 20th century when the majority of missionaries were going out of Europe and America. Only time will tell how far the African church's reach will extend around the globe. Lawrence, in his article, Masterless Plans of Global Evangelism, reveals how mission efforts by Western Christianity are different from those of the African church. Furthermore, he contrasts the planning sessions with Western church leaders as opposed to planning session with African church leaders. The difference was stark. The Western meetings followed secular business strategies while the African leaders searched for the will of God. The apostolic church must not allow a culture of secular business models to direct our mission. We are participants in the Missio Dei. If we are participants in the Missio Dei, then our efforts must arise out of the Holy Spirit's directives if they are to be sustainable, enduring, and effective. In conclusion, there are five statements concerning a theology of mission that must be noted. Number one, mission is not part of the church's life, but rather is the essence of the church. Mission is not the church's initiative, but is rather a derivative. Mission is not an extension of Western culture, power, or values, but rather is the expansion of the kingdom of God on earth. Four, mission is the governing framework of biblical interpretation, and I would add that scripture is the governing framework of mission. Number five, in conclusion, God's church does not have a mission. God's mission has a church. Thank you, Dr. Young. When we conclude this session, question and answer today, this will be my final duties as the moderator, and I want to personally say thank you for all of you for your participation, your questions, your input, and kind comments. Others will take on the duties from here. I do want to express to you that as moderator, I don't have carte blanche. I am instructed by the powers that be as to how to run and dictate this uh, session. So we're going to follow as we have been with this one caveat that we've had about 30 to 50 people come in today that were not here previously. If we see any of those that have a question, they will receive the priority over those that have already been here for a while, just simply out of Christian character and saying thank you for coming. So uh, having said that, once again, thank you for an outstanding presentation. And we now open this officially for questions, comments to Dr. Young on his mission statement. I saw David Holmes. Dr. Young, I want to thank you for that presentation. It was outstanding and uh, so much to absorb. In page 8 of your paper, uh, you make this statement about the active participation in the Missio Dei and say, becoming a participant in the mission of God requires more than some kind of disinterested benevolence. And then you added comments in respect of that uh, to, the, to the effect of missionaries coming in with their slideshows and that being the extent of engagement with missions. I see two things from my observations um, that deal with that, that seem to contribute to that disinterested benevolence. 
And one of them is that we use the term missions often, almost, I want to say almost exclusively, which is probably too much, but very most frequently in relation to distant lands. And then in connection with that, we also consider, uh, we have limited opportunities, I'll say, for people in local church assemblies to connect with mission efforts in those distant lands. I wonder if you share those observations and if you have any others to add, and if you have any thoughts about how to close the gap between missions being something uh, abroad and missions as being something at hand. Uh, I do. I have personal opinion, and this is that's a very observant question, and um, this has been discussed and will continue to be discussed. In fact, in, in the studies at Fuller Theological Seminary, this has been uh, greatly discussed. In fact, there's a number of uh, works that maybe I could get to you at some point. Um, one of the things that is being bandied about is, is a statement. i see if I can get it right. I think it answers and speaks to this. Is the danger is when, when everything is missions, nothing is missions. And this is the idea that um, let's, let's, let's just make everything missions because there's this idea, let's just let's paint with a broad brush, let's, brush, let's put everything under mission. And there's an argument of why that should be done. Then the pushback is, well, if we make everything missions, uh, that's going to affect and nothing will be missions. And, and uh, so there is, that's coming out of this, this argument or this debate that is going on. Uh, there's, another, there's another side where, where the idea is that studies have been done. For instance, let's use this example. Uh, and this affects some of us that work with, with things like Hope Corps. Is they've literally done studies that people that are involved in short-term missions, per se, so that's an, an example of your a limited access, here's an opportunity. Uh, things like Hope Corps or, or vice versa. Uh, they've actually discovered that short-term missions in the long haul, limits finance and donorship over the long haul with exceptions if there is no long-term connection. So the, the, I'm giving these examples to show that in the discussion, at least uh, secular Christianity, these are very real things that people are trying to figure out. Um, I think one of the things that is needed is I get, I get the... The guy comes through, needs an offering. There's an immediate need. Let's support the missionary, okay? My grandfather, my grandparents were missionaries. My sister was a missionary. My uncle was a missionary. My first cousin died on the mission field. I come from a long line of missionaries. My father was the United Pentecostal Church, Louisiana District, for 19 years for our mission director. I know well what it means to have a missionary come, and I know the difficulty of getting a missionary a place to get a PIM. I understand that. Uh, but I think... I think one of the things that needs to happen is there has to be a theology of mission. Do our people, is what they know of missions, is that something we give when a guy comes to town or a family comes to town that needs monthly support? If that's all they think about mission, we got a problem. Because we are participants in the mission. So mission, therefore, becomes more than just what God's doing in Africa or the Philippines. Mission could be across the street, which is why somewhere in there I said something about, I have to ask myself, what is God doing in the earth 
And what is God doing within my reach? And so I think if we begin to talk about these things, I, I, I'm not one that thinks the day of the missionary is over. I think, I think the more revival there is, the more missionaries we need. There will never be a day that there is not global missions and the foreign or the global reach. I think that's just part of it. I can't explain why God uh, would, it would have been easier for God to, to, to connect somebody across the street. You know, we've all had occasions where we know the stories about where this guy's on a plane or in a cab or at a restaurant meets a guy and, and God opens up a revival over there. I, I can't explain why in Vandalia, Missouri, a college student walks in, of all places, Vandalia, and now 10,000 people later, couldn't God have sent somebody already in Kenya? I, I can't explain how God runs his economy. He's God, okay? But I do think we need to be training our people, our ministry, to, to look what is within my reach. We never know what God is doing in that Starbucks in your town or in, when that college student comes in from Kenya into the little church of 30, uh, Brother Philip Cooper's. So I think there needs to be an awareness. Yes, yes there is that reach. There's always going to be the need to support on a monthly basis. Uh, there's always going to be that immediate need that has to be done. And, yeah, I, honestly, I'll take the disinterested benevolence to meet the need. You know, you may not ever pray. Just write a check. I'll take that. You know, God loves a cheerful giver, but he'll take it from a grouch. <laughs> but I do think there's another dimension that when we recognize our role in participating and that there's action on our part. And I think the more we talk about it, uh, the more impact we're going to see. Thank you. Next question. In the back, Pastor Mayo. Dr. Young, I appreciate that tremendous presentation. Um, correct me if I'm wrong, but what I think you're, you have described as being a historical um, and wrong, way, wrong approach has been almost a vicarious attempt at missions where we're actually giving and somebody else is actually doing the mission's work. And with that being said, would an example of true apostolic missiology be the Great Commission with signs and wonders following? Thank you. Yeah, I, the short answer would be yes. I, I agree with that statement. And I don't want to throw off and, and, and like denigrate that monthly support from uh, the little lady that's giving in your church or even the wealthy family that's giving in your church because I do think there is scriptural precedent where, you know, the famine that hit the book of Acts and the needs of the churches where people were giving out a sacrifice, Paul even wrote to them, and what offerings were prepared and given. So I do think there is, there's always and will continue to be that need uh, of, of donor-based uh, benevolence. Uh, but yes, I do think, I think with a true understanding of a theology of mission as a participant instead of some observer, I think the key is on participation instead of observation. Uh, one, of the, one of the discussions is that the, the old typical sit down and watch the slideshow when the missionary comes to town uh, created that sense of observation instead of participation. Uh, you know, have, go out in the booth and, and buy a piranha for your desk. You know, the guy paid $2 for it, but he needs the money, so give him $50 on an offering. And, and that created this observation 
kind of like, uh, you know, uh, Stearns and what, I can't remember the name of it. They, every Christmas I get a catalog, you know, buy a goat for a family here or there. And, and I, I do that. Every year we, we, we do something like that to help someone. Uh, and I would encourage that. But again, if we're not talking about it from a theological standpoint, it becomes more of an observation. And then if it's just disinterested, I've got to come up with a better story or a grosser account of some family that really needs it right now. And bless God, you know, the list goes on. I've got to pull rabbits out of the hat to get the donor base up. And then if, if I'm not working with participation, um, I'm limiting even the growth on whatever field it may be based upon the amount that I'm able to generate through promotion and marketing. So I think, I think the key is we've got to begin to move to participation instead of observation. Pastor Johnny King, back row. It's fairly easy to um, identify a pastor today or an evangelist, prophet, where would what we typically call a missionary fit into the five-fold ministry? And, and second question, who today would really qualify for the term missionary? That is a, we could probably have a day on that subject. Um, so I'm going to let my chauffeur answer that one now. Um, as the old saying goes. I think, there's, I think there's several ways to look at that, Brother King. Um, I'll just give the default answer first, and then I'll follow up with all of my own personal thoughts. If I were, if I were picking a missionary, I think, I think a missionary, number one, could fit in any one of those. Uh, because by the definition, the term apostle, one who is sent, uh, I think that pioneer missionary definitely would qualify in the role. Now, I don't know if he goes and gets cards printed and said, I'm apostle so-and-so. You know, maybe, maybe not. Uh, but I think he would fit in category number one of apostle, one who's sent, so he's going. Uh, but yet at the same time, a missionary can pastor, a missionary can teach. He's going to do the work of an, of an evangelist. Uh, and I think we all are probably in agreement that all of us as men of God uh, for instance, as a pastor, there are times that I step to the pulpit, and I'm even charged scripturally to do the work of an evangelist. Uh, there are times that, that I, I step, and I know without a shadow of a doubt that the, the realm of the prophetic is on me, that what I'm going to preach uh, is prophetic uh, proclamation. So I think, I think in, that, in that regard, a missionary could function in any one of those different gifts. Uh, I personally have uh, maybe a little, let's turn the kaleidoscope a little bit. Uh, we often look at either the five-fold ministry in, in five different sets of people or five different roles that one man can function in at random times or under anointing, and I think that's all uh, appropriate and true. But I also think there's another way that possibly uh, we could look at the five-fold ministry from a uh, missiological viewpoint, and I think this, this would make sense, I'll try to explain this, is that it could be a process. For instance, let's use missionary prime, uh, pioneer. So one who is sent. So he goes in the role of the apostle. 
okay? So he goes to, he sent, he goes to that country, apostles, prophet. When he gets there, he moves at some point. He arrives on location. Then he has to break that thing loose with the prophetic gift. So he becomes a prophet to that location, whether it's global, whether it's domestic. Uh, apostles, prophets, uh, what's number three? Help me up here. Uh, pastor. So uh, as, that, as that takes place, he moves from prophet. Now a crowd begins to gather. The group begins to gather. They now have to be pastored. Okay, so now that you've got a group, we're at level number three, but now that you've got them, you're pastoring, now the church or the group is to expand. So we're now to another chronological step of the, of the five-fold ministry. Now that body begins to do the work of evangeliz uh, evangelization, so he leads them in that process, which then moves us. Then he's pastoring, he's evangelizing. Now he's teaching the people that are gathered through. So I think they're just turn the kaleidoscope, and I think that in any area, from pioneer all the way to the teacher, I think the missionary could function in that role. And uh, I personally have um, had at length discussion because it was, it was a little, little bit strange. And I actually approached my church about it, spoke that to them as well as to my own pastors and bishops, that I don't see myself as a pastor first and foremost, even though I am a pastor. I see myself as a missionary. And I think we are limiting, and this is my opinion. I don't, I don't state it as doctrine. This is my idea. Uh, and, and let me see if I can make this make sense. This is a long answer. Even what I would call weak, and I don't mean that character. Let's just say that are not the most successful missionaries on foreign soil. Uh, every four years, they would come back as a kid. I grew up with them staying in our home. And you've got, and I won't call names, but you've got the missionaries that come back. They give a slide presentation and say, I want to show you. We had 10,000 at our, at our annual convention, and 552 received the Holy Ghost on Monday night, and then Tuesday, 600. And, man, we go crazy, and that's a successful missionary. And then the guy that's not so eloquent that probably never pastored in the United States, maybe wasn't qualified and didn't really function well as an assistant pastor, but by default he wound up, on the mission field through the AIM program or some such, he winds up and he goes to the mission field and we would call him, let's just be honest, we would say, well, you know, they're not as successful as so-and-so. They're what we would label the weak missionary. But I observed it's not even strange for the weak missionaries to come back after four years and we don't view them as successful, but they planted four or five churches. That run 20 to 30, and boy, nobody gets them up at the big conference or, or, or convention or convocation because they're the weak one. They, you know, they only planted four churches that only run 20, and they don't have any dead being raised. They just have a few. They just got preaching points, and we label them the weak missionary. But let's be honest. A step out of Western North American mindset, how many pastors in the last four years in America, planted four preaching points that have 20 apiece. And what I began to pray about was this theology of mission is, is it our mentality? That missionary goes to wherever it is on foreign soil. He's not so focused on building his personal kingdom and keeping Saints from moving from here to there to keep them happy, to impress people at the conference about his Sunday school attendance. 
He's just trying, I meet a guy in a cab. I meet a guy at the, at the market. I'm, I just want to get them saved. And he views not as this location. He views, man, this is my country. God, what are you doing within my reach? And I, be, I begin to wrestle with this. What would happen if all of us pastors, instead of just saying, well, I'm, this is my role as pastor, what if we begin to think like missionaries? God, what are you doing within my reach? So maybe it's not just at 8520 Bradshaw Road. What if you're doing something while I'm on vacation? What if you're doing something while I'm getting my car fixed? What if, you know, and then, and we could get into the whole length. I'm afraid we're a little harder on each other than we are on the mission field, the global mission field. You know, we'll take time with a Trinitarian pastor in Africa, Honduras. But are we willing to take time with the Trinitarian pastor of our city? So I think, again, it moves back to, for me, it's about participation instead of observation. This is a moderator question. It has to do with paradigm shift. My question to you is, we try to use the New Testament as our template when it comes to baptism. We literally want to put our finger on the page and say we duplicate what happens in these instances. We do it with the infilling of the Holy Ghost and all of our doctrinal positions. We make an attempt to replicate identically what was done in the apostolic era. It appears to me that there has been and has always been a paradigm shift in the initial pattern set by the Apostle Paul. Three missionary journeys that we're aware of. Our missionaries don't follow that protocol. They go to a place and stay as opposed to Paul's missionary journeys. Do you have any idea in your studies why that paradigm shift occurred? I, I, think, I think that there are, I think number one, he was led by the Spirit. In fact, one place, there was a logical sequence of what he wanted to do, but he was forbade by the Spirit. Uh, I believe we need to hunger, again, a theology of the Missio Dei that we are participants and that it's not initiated by us, but it's initiated by him, then leads us to our needs. What are you doing? Uh, had he done what was logically, from a business standpoint of mission, he would have gone to the next easiest, most, most, most logical and financial, e economic, doable. That would have been the next step, but the Spirit forbade him. So I think as a participant, I'm not asking, we're not coming together as a church saying, okay, what can we do? Let's find out what we can do. What, let's get involved in missions. It's in vogue. Let's do something. Let's, let's find somebody to support. Let's, I think as a participant, let's find out what God is doing. So I, number one, I think uh, that was what was happening uh, in, in that regard. Uh, the other thing is that I think there were, God has particular people for a particular purpose. Uh, you know, we like to think of, you know, just this, this random choice that Paul winds up, um, the missionary to the Gentiles, if, if you will. Uh, but, but Paul was specifically chosen by Barnabas and then by the elders. And to go back to the very area where he was raised, where he grew up. So this was not some random, uh, he just winds up doing it. It was very specific. It was very... God's hand was very specific in that it opened up. Uh, another level was that Paul spent time developing men. And this is, uh, again, you know, I don't even know if our, our, our American, let's talk about missions, even America, I don't know if we're ready to embrace a truly apostolic model. Uh, 
because much of what we call normative we got from the denominal world let's just be honest and again in there I said we're not trying to spread the Western or North American culture but yet that's what we do sometimes uh, for instance I don't know how open our churches would be to uh, a pastor leave and say okay uh, here's Here's this 21-year-old Timothy or 25-year-old. He's going to take care of you for the next six months. We may be out of a job and, and income. You know, I, and again, it, it goes back. We, we cannot build the kingdom of God based off of denominal Christian models. We have to find the mind of the Spirit. And, and I know time is of essence, but where are we going globally with the urbanization of the earth? I mean, let's just be real. The, the world's changing. Your world, and, and this may not be so uh, appropriate to you, that you, us that are 50 headed to 60, 70, but to your grandkids, missions is going to look very different 25 years from now. And I, I'm privileged to pastor a 95,000 square foot edifice in the suburb of Sacramento in Elk Grove that seats 2,400 people. I'm honored. That's cool. But how are you going to duplicate that in London, England, or Bangladesh? How are you going to build that building in New York City? My, my point is to say that we have got to get this understanding of the Missio Dei, that this is what God is doing, not what we're doing. Because we're going to come just like all the missiology studies. Is, and One crazy example, you want to know how black slaves wound up in the New World? Black slaves wound up in the, in the New World as a result of a bad missiological plan. Da Gama came as a Catholic priest looking at what was going on in the Caribbean islands where people were being, the, the natives of that part of the world were being used to build the European houses and structures. They had lived in grass houses and fished and cropped. They didn't know one thing about steel and concrete. They didn't know anything about that. They had never done it. They said, they're lazy. They can't keep up with the work. They, they have never done that kind of work. Da Gama comes over on a boat, and he sees these people that aren't getting the job done, even with whips on their back. And his answer, a missiological mistake, because he's looking at the action of the church. How can the church, I say that loosely, his idea was how can we fix this problem? These people are being mistreated. We've got to fix this. This is not the Christian ethic. And these people are not strong enough. It would take five of them to equal the work of one strong African. Ta-da! A mistaken missiology brought Africans who were stronger to replace the work of islanders that were viewed as weak, and thus you have the beginning of black slave trade in the New World. That example is we can't go with our carnal thinking. We can't even trust the mission models of the denominal past. Somewhere we've got to recognize we are participants in the Missio Dei. What are you doing? Not what we can conjure up at headquarters or Tulsa or St. Louis or wherever it may be. We've got to get on our knees and say, God, what are you doing in the earth? And then join with that. One last question. All right. So I'll get you. I'll get, you'll be the last one. Let me get him in the blue and then I'll give you the last question. Pastor Young, you were giving uh, the illustration earlier of 
an individual going to maybe a foreign country and uh, fulfilling the different uh, aspects of the fivefold ministry, would you say that the biblical model of missions is sending one man to an area and he builds something independently of the larger church edifice? Or is there a church model you would deem more appropriate and more closer to how the Bible would send out maybe groups of men or groups of people into an area to missionize or to reach a, you know, a certain geographical location? What, what would you say is closer to the biblical model? I think, I think biblically you have examples of both. I think there are specific callings for individuals. Um, and we also see Paul used a team. But we also see where the Spirit took one guy up in a whirlwind by himself. Uh, so I, th I, think, I think, again, we go back to, okay, God, what are you doing? Okay. Um, is there strength in numbers? Yeah. Um, is, there, is there growth that happens out of individual alone? Yeah. Um, I, think, I think that's where, I don't know if there's a, this is it and this is not. I think that it could be both, in my personal opinion. When you got to that black thing. Now, just kidding. <laughs> just kidding. But I did wait for the other 46 to have their turn before I. <laughs> Keep in mind, we paid the same amount. <laughs> so don't punish me for coming early. Listening, what you did is that you uncovered and you sneaked it in on us that some missiology is ego-based instead of what you said the Old Testament model or the biblical model was capacity building, not ego fending. That, in other words, we send people to need-based areas, economic need. Not so much as one Nigerian told me that the greatest mission field is America. Mm -hmm. But Americans feel that the gospel, our apostolic message, is greater and more received among a demographic that is need-based, economic, health, and so forth. And so what you did is that when they stand in organizational control is that it makes it seem like it's that missionary centered all those numbers. They supply need-based people, as Jesus said about us in America or typical um, rich and increasing good and have need of nothing but miserable, right. blind, and so forth, or lukewarm. We go to feels where there's a demographic. And so that's, you know, the last question and his question really touched on my whole question here about the shift. And that is to capacity building where we have a model where we build up those that are there, knowing that oftentimes the 
prophet in his own country is not well received. And so many times, same color, same such, uh, you might be perceived as more of, an, of a native as opposed to a white man going to a predominantly ethnic minor or ethnic majority, but economically need, but they perceive them as an outsider. So I'm just saying the apostolic model of missioning, and I, this is would you agree to throw in the question, is really uh, uh, exercised by what you said. The miracles that are associated and the miracles tend to be greatest among those who feel a need for what we are bringing to them in Jesus Christ uh, in terms of the miracles associated with what we have. You know what I'm saying? That, uh, that message. So uh, that is my question. Uh, okay, well, you know, do you agree with that need-based part most evidenced among economic deprived culturally? Uh, yeah. I mean, so, so the, forth. The, the answer, my opinion, is everybody needs God. Okay, rich, poor, all of the above. Jesus himself said, you know, that he had come, you know, the well need not a physician. Okay, you know, that those are, those are ideas. Um, let me answer it kind of roundabout. I believe, I believe we're going to see a shift of mission globally that actually happens domestically. What I mean by that is I've already made reference to Brother Philip Cooper's revival in Vandalia, Missouri. Uh, one college student comes in connected to a bishop and 10,000 people in the last seven years have been baptized in Jesus' name. That happened locally, but it affected global. So I believe there's a global uh, revival about to take place. Um, I see the day, for instance, my city, Sacramento, uh, there are over 100,000 Russians. The city I pastor in as of last week uh, was ranked in the United States as the most diverse city. Number one was Fairfield, California. Number two, Elk Grove, California. Number three, Queens, New York. And five, Oakland, California. So what I see happening is a city that has 100,000 Russians. Uh, we have now in little Saigon, a part of Sacramento, 50,000 Vietnamese living in that community. What I envision happening is I believe the immigrant community is ripe for revival. Number one, they're displaced or, they're, or they've moved following a dream. Uh, they come to America. It's not quite what they thought it was going to be. They thought it was a land of milk and honey. They got here and had to work, don't have any family, don't have any friends. They're trying to connect. I believe one of the most incredible global revival markets is in our own cities in the different immigrant communities because they're searching. Uh, what I'm experiencing in my church is I'm experiencing a hunger of people from a variety of backgrounds, uh, but largely from immigrant communities because they're searching. And, but here's the interesting thing is I recently went to England and I talked to pastors. You know what they told me? They told me the same thing. And then I went to the South Pacific, and I preached. And you know what the missionary told me? We need an international church. And as I look, this seems to be a phenomenon, and, and I'll close with, with this. As I look at the story 
of the apostle preaching. He's just come through the placa, and he's seen all the different uh, idols, and he uses the philosophers of his day to make a connection. And he uh, says to them, he said, God's made of one blood all nations. Basically saying, you're not going to get God in all these temples and all this stuff you're doing. But then he, he utters what, what I believe is one of the most powerful revelations in the word of God. Is he said, God hath determined the times before appointed. And he basically says, God appointed the time and the city limits where people would live. For one reason, that they would seek the Lord. So this whole urbanization, this whole global shift that's taking place, I believe the hand of God is behind it. Contrary to what they sang, we built this city on rock and roll. Rock and roll didn't build your city. God built your city. And it's his mission. And so wherever, if it's the pouring out, if it's the down and out, whether it's global, whether it's local, whether it's in a church, whether it's in an altar, whether it's in a cab or an airplane, there's a hungry heart. That if I can get into participation through the Spirit, God, what are you doing within my reach today? I believe that's going to open up doors for global mission like we've never seen.